Good morning, everyone. My name is Reese. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, so we've been doing this teaching series through the Psalms, and we've just handpicked Psalms that uh, us on the preaching and teaching team have really found impactful in our own lives. And so we've had Jeff Chater speak, and Sarah Dover, and Pastor Dave, and they've done a really brilliant job at leading us through some of these really iconic Psalms. And uh, this morning, we're going to be going through a psalm that's been really close to my heart. Um, and when I, as I've been preparing this psalm, uh, I was reminded of a really outlandish moment, uh, formative moment in my own childhood. Um, my family, uh, we were wildlife enthusiasts, still are, um, and we would go on summer camping trips. And uh, on these summer camping trips, Every morning, dawn, sun was rising. My father would wake us up, three boys, and we'd go on like a 5 a.m. safari. And we would drive around. We'd be looking, peering out the window, stopping at, you know, at clearings, trying to see if we can spot an animal. And then uh, as the day was coming to a close, the sun was setting at dusk. Again, we'd get out in the car. We'd go, and we'd be on a safari looking for animals. And this became a bit of a tradition. We would get all giddy about it and excited. Um, and as a boy, I just found it so fascinating. You know, this was kind of what our family did. Our favorite show was Zabumafu, Kratz Creatures. We loved that stuff. So there was one point where I think we just came to realize maybe there's got to be a way in which we can uh, have an even wilder encounter. And so my dad, uh, he went to the uh, park office in Banff National Park. And I think he said something like, hey, hypothetically, uh, if we were to have um, a really up-close encounter with some wildlife, um, where would we do that, and how would we do that? And, and the ranger said, well, hypothetically, if that was the case, um, you would head out at dusk um, on this trail, takes you right into the woods up the mountain, um, and surely you would have some pretty crazy encounters. But there was kind of a bit of a caution with that as well. It was like, this guy can't be serious. Um, so the next day, my dad says, guys, we're going to go on an adventure tonight. This is going to be a safari. It's not like any other safari. Um, and we are going to be going on a little hike here at almost nighttime. Um, and so the sun is setting. And I'm not going to go into every single detail about this walk because you, you honestly you wouldn't believe me. It was... Um, as if it was like a real-life um, splash mountain kind of experience. It's like you're going through and these animals like animatronics are appearing all over the place. Um, but as a family, we come to the end of our hike. And as the trail looks ahead, you've got a bit of a clearing, and there's a bench off to the side as we close the hike. And uh, it was my cousin who was with us who peered ahead, and he said, what is that? points ahead. Um, and right at the end of the trail, blocking where we would walk, where we would walk um, was the largest male grizzly bear that I had ever seen before. This thing was huge. It was a brute. It was um, dark brown fur, fur bristling. It was one of those things that you would see in a cartoon, just massive grizzly bear. And so what happened next was pandemonium. I mean, we were all just, oh my goodness, people were praying. Um, 
my brother who close in age was praying and cussing at the same time. I was like, how does that work? Um, And so this was just a circus at the moment. Um, And I remember through all the prayers um, and craziness of this moment, uh, I thought to myself, what what is God going to do here? What's going to happen? Is he going to send a lightning bolt to strike this? Is he going to spawn a larger bear to fend off this bear? What is going to happen? And so in that moment, as I'm thinking this, the bear uh, turns to us and it looks right at us. And it takes this kind of posture as if it was going to start coming towards us. And its fur stood up on its hide and its big hump on its back. I remember thinking, what's, what's God going to do here? Um, there, there are so many moments in all of our lives in which we feel like, what's God going to do here? How is God going to intervene in this situation? In a war-torn country, people who are suffering might be asking that same question. Through the wildfires, when a home is burning down, people might be asking the same question. Through financial crisis, people might be asking that same question through a cancer diagnosis, that same question. God, how are you going to intervene in this circumstance? And so that's what we're going to talk a little bit about this morning. How do we make sense of God's protection? And the psalm that we're going to look into is Psalm 91. So if you have a Bible on you, uh, could you please turn to Psalm 91? And there's going to be the text up on screen. But really, this is uh, one of those sermons in which I'd really love for you to have your Bible open, whether it's on the app, whether it's physically in front of you, uh, because there's lots that we're going to be following along with. So we're going to read together. Psalm 91, verse 1. You who live in the shelter of the Most High, who abide in the shadow of the Almighty, will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the hunter and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and defense. You will not fear the terror of the night or the arrow that flies by day or the pestilence that stalks in the darkness or the destruction that wastes at noonday. Verse 7, a thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your refuge, the most high your dwelling place, no evil shall befall you, no scourge come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will 
bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against the stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Those who love me, I will deliver. I will protect those who know my name. When they call to me, I will answer them. I will be with them in trouble. With long life, I will satisfy them and show them my salvation. Let's pray together this morning. God, thank you so much for Psalm 91. Thank you that this is an opportunity for us to reflect and consider what's really at the nucleus of this psalm. And for those coming in this morning brand new or watching online, would this be a morning of encounter with you? And I pray that for each person in this congregation. That your Holy Spirit would be with us and give us peace. Amen. Um, during my time in university, I had the privilege of studying under a Psalms scholar. His name was Craig Broyles, and he wrote a whole commentary on the Psalms. And this is how he preludes Psalm 91. This is what he says. He says, for certain believers, this Psalm provides some of the most comforting promises of the Bible. For others, these promises are some of its most unrealistic. For the faithful who have experienced tragedy, these promises smack of being cruel. And I'm curious about where you find yourself this morning. What kind of vantage point you're viewing this psalm from as we read it? Are you comforted? Are you skeptical? Or are you frustrated or angry or sad or disappointed? What vantage point are you reading this from? And I'll be honest, myself, when I read this psalm for the first time, I was skeptical. The language that was being used, I just felt like maybe this author was um, separated from reality or was kind of peddling a toxic positivity or something. I could not make sense of this psalm. Either way, either way, the promises that are found in Psalm 91 are powerful. They're potent. When you read them, you notice, wow, could it be? Could it be true? So how are we going to make sense of Psalm 91? We're going to look at this psalm through three different vantage points, and we'll come out with three main takeaways. And as we take a deeper look into Psalm 91, this is my hope for you, that you continue to develop for yourself a thorough theology of God's protection, and that you come away from this with some further questions that you're going to process through and wrestle with. That's our hope as preachers and teachers. Not that you would always come out with the concrete answers, but that you would continue to wrestle with and go back to the text and go to God with your questions. And so, this is the first vantage point that we're going to be looking at this text from. This psalm was written for the pilgrim. This psalm, Psalm 91, was written for the pilgrim. What do I mean by that? Uh, 
Psalm 91, many scholars believe that this psalm in particular was written for those partaking in the temple pilgrimage. Okay, so what is the temple pilgrimage? It's this two-week journey, happened three times a year during the significant Israelite feasts. This is a time where you offer your first fruits to God at the temple. And so from wherever you were at, you were to make this journey three times a year, often through the wilderness, through the desert, to the temple where you would offer your first fruits. And so we see this in Deuteronomy 16. This is what it says. Three times a year, all your men must appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose, at the festival of unleavened bread, the festival of weeks, and the festival of tabernacles. No one should appear before the Lord empty-handed. Each of you must bring a gift in proportion to the way the Lord God has blessed you. So that's what we're dealing with, the temple pilgrimage. And many scholars believe this was written for those who are partaking in this pilgrimage. And so how do we know this? Well, as we look at Psalm 91, and I I want you to be looking at the text in your Bible, uh, we see some clues in the language. The language that's being used, we can see some clues. So first, in verses 1 and 2, we see language like shelter and shadow. These were words commonly used in the Old Testament to describe what it was like to be in the temple of God. Second, we notice words like foot and tread and trample as you look further into the psalm. This is pilgrim, pilgrimage language, walking language. Third, we see in verse 10, no scourge will come near your tent. So this alludes to the tents that were being used along the pilgrimage by pilgrims to keep safe, to rest, and to find sleep. And so you can imagine for these pilgrims that the words of Psalm 91 were this comfort for those making this two-week journey to the temple. And at the end of the road, after two weeks of wandering, you come to the temple, the pinnacle of encounter with God, a place in which you will meet God like no other place, where you'll feel a closeness with your Lord. And so when I read this, I think of my brother who just recently did the El Camino de Santiago, famous pilgrimage through Spain and Portugal, Um, a weeks-long journey towards uh, a town called Santiago de Compostela. And in the middle of the town, there is a staggeringly beautiful cathedral. You should see the picture up there. Isn't that beautiful? And so this is where everyone doing, no matter where you start, doing the Camino ends up. And so when you have journeyed, your feet are worn, your legs stretched, your back and shoulders bearing the weight of your supplies, you stand in awe of this beautiful structure. And for those who've traveled through Europe and even through uh, many of the cities in Canada as well, um, cathedrals are common. Uh, You know, when we were traveling through Europe recently, it seemed like in every town there was a cathedral, you know, similar to this, with architecture that just blows your mind, the interior that just is awe-inspiring. But when you have journeyed, when you are weary, the destination becomes all that much sweeter. 
And so the temple pilgrimage, it was filled with many threats, potential threats, and we read about them here in Psalm 91, and we'll get into those a little bit more. But the assurance here, the assurance here is that for those who trust in him along the journey, there is security. There is no fear. There is protection. And as we reflect on this, we are all pilgrims, aren't we? We are all pilgrims. In First Peter, in Hebrews as well, we are called pilgrims, sojourners here on earth. And same as in uh, Paul, you know, as he writes, he speaks of our faith journey being this long walk. Jesus talks about following him along the way, wandering the wilderness, just like the Israelites, just like Jesus did, just like the apostles, New Testament saints, the desert fathers and mothers, those who wandered the wilderness. We are all pilgrims on a journey towards a destination. And you might be thinking, that all sounds really good. But how many pilgrims read these same words in Psalm 91, yet still encountered danger and suffering along the road? How many still were ambushed by bandits or attacked by a wild animal or caught in the snare of a hunter? We'll learn that for the pilgrims, this psalm, Psalm 91, was comforting not because of any sort of earthly security, but because of a deeper security. And we'll dig into that a little bit more. And so number two, second vantage point that we're going to view this psalm from is that this psalm uses imagery that speaks to a deeper protection. And so the key to understanding this psalm is by, uh, in its context, is by understanding and looking at and interpreting the imagery. And so the dominant picture here, the dominant image and theme that we see is that we as believers can take refuge in God. And this psalm, like many other psalms, it uses imagery to convey a deeper reality, a deeper truth that's underneath the surface. The original readers in their time would have had an easier time understanding this sort of literature because it was familiar to them. Um, For us, we find it's a little bit more difficult to understand as we're reading in English and not its original language. And so thus we tend to misinterpret psalms at times and the imagery that's being used to convey a deeper reality. And so we have some amazing, powerful imagery being used here to describe God's protection. Like shield. God's protection is like a shield or a fortress or Strong wings like a mother bird sheltering her young and more. And this would be familiar language to ancient Near Eastern people. They would have understood exactly what this meant. It would have been familiar in their world. And so, you know, it, there's, there's tons of beautiful language being used. And I just want to quickly look at verse 11. It says, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. And the reason I want to look at this for a second and go on a quick little tangent um, is because uh, I want to talk about guardian angels for a second. Uh, this was an idea 
uh, made popular in our minds through films like It's a Wonderful Life or through just kind of common, friendly wisdom. And what I mean by guardian angel is uh, this idea or doctrine that there's one angel that is uh, uniquely assigned to your life to follow you, to protect you, to watch out for you, to make sure you don't stub your toe on the corner of the cabinet. That's what I mean by guardian angel. And so uh, people historically have used verse 11 to support the doctrine of guardian angels. Uh, I think it's really, really important for us as we read through the Psalms um, not to take one verse and build a whole doctrine out of one word, uh, because that's just not what we see in Scripture. Um, angels have been used to, uh, for a variety of different purposes, and so here are a few. Relaying messages, we see that in the Christmas story. Fighting demonic forces like the archangel Michael. Uh, one of them would be watching over believers and serving God for the sake of believers. We read that in Hebrews as well. And so Psalm 91 is emphasizing that angels, the purpose of angels, can be to guard believers and watch over them uh, in their journey. Not necessarily that there is one specific angel that is going to follow you around, but that the legion of angels are deployed by God to serve and watch over believers. And how comforting is that? And so, okay, end of tangent. On the flip side, we see more imagery used to depict the kind of threats that we face along the journey. And so, threats in the, in the psalm, they're depicted as snares, deadly pestilence or disease, destruction in the midday, arrows that fly, deadly animals, and, and more. And so, these, this is also familiar language for those who would have lived in the ancient Near East during the time these psalms were written. So, we're noticing that there's a lot of imagery being used here, but how do we interpret this? Okay, I want you guys to look at verse 8. This is the key interpretive point in understanding what Psalm 91 is addressing, and this is what it says. It says, the punishment of the wicked. The punishment of the wicked. And this is where things click. This is where the penny drops for us. At the end of this psalm, God speaks about showing them, or us, his salvation, meaning those who trust him, who believe in him, who follow him. Salvation from what? Deliverance from what? Verse 8, the punishment of the wicked. And so the, the, the imagery that is being used here in Psalm 91 is actually meant to reveal to us a deeper dynamic at play. Psalm 91 is using imagery. The writer is using imagery to communicate, as Craig Broyles says, not that believers are exempt from any calamity, simply that they are free from divine retribution. We see Jesus use imagery in a similar way in Luke 10. Says, I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. So let me be clear again. This psalm 
is not a guarantee that in this life you will avoid and dodge pain and suffering as long as you believe in and trust God. Jesus, again, he says the opposite in John 16. He says, in this world, you will have trouble. But he follows that with this. Take heart. Take heart. I have overcome the world. What we do see in this psalm is an assurance of spiritual security for the believer who trusts in God and spiritual retribution for those who are wicked and far from God. And so how and why do we find comfort in this spiritual security that we're talking about and that this psalm is addressing? Because spiritual security, it's not just about the eternal life aspect with God. It's about the rich and deep spiritual life that we get to live in relationship with Jesus in the here and now, unobstructed by what would want to separate us from God and life in God. And so for those like me who felt that the promises in this psalm were unrealistic, Or maybe you felt that the promises in this psalm were cruel to those who may have experienced suffering in their life. That when they read this, feel like, am I on the outs? We now understand that this psalm isn't blind to suffering or threats, but is actually meant to encourage and comfort the reader with a deeper security. There's times in my own life where I've had to wrestle with this. And I'm sure I've said this story before, but um, when I was 18 years old, one of my closest friends at the time passed away in a shipwreck. And at the time, I was away on an outreach in Brazil, and I had to come to terms with the trouble and trials of this world. My own grief in this moment, but also the, the, the whole fact and idea that something like this would happen, that a storm would cause waves so large and so big that it would capsize a boat. I had to come to terms with this. Understanding Psalm 91 was key in me making peace with God throughout those moments. Jesus' words that in this life, you'll have trouble. There's going to be trials and suffering, but take heart. I've overcome the world. I have given you spiritual life and vitality and security, and nobody can take that away from you. Third vantage point that we're going to look at this psalm through. This psalm is calling us to a radically trusting relationship with God. I love how this psalm ends. And as you read the final few verses, you'll notice immediately the language. It is like a balm to our weary souls. Verse 14. Those who love me, I will deliver. I will protect those who know my name. 
When they call to me, I will answer them. I will be with them in trouble. I will rescue them and honor them. With long life, I will satisfy them and show them my salvation. And so, first things first, in verse 14, he says, those who love me, I will deliver. I will protect those who know my name. God is calling us to a reciprocal relationship here. Other ancient gods during this time would use language like, if you kill for me, I'll protect you. If you, if you fight my war, if you pillage this town, I'll protect you. Yahweh says, this is his conditions for security and protection. Love me. Know my name. Be in relationship and fellowship with me. He wants a loving relationship filled with trust. And so the promises continue. It says, when they call me, I will answer them. I will be with them in trouble. I will rescue them and honor them. It's beautiful language. And we see the attributes of God on display here. Availability, consistency, dependability, strength, dignity, care, tenderness. We long for these attributes in those that we are closest to, don't we? These are some of God's core attributes. Notice how he promises to be with us in trouble. There's no denying that trouble exists, but he remains a rock in hard times. How much do we appreciate when we are experiencing troubles? The faithful presence of a friend or family member. Not someone who's either going to come in and give their best uh, stab at fixing the trouble, and not someone who's distant, but someone who's present with you, a rock in troublesome times. And so Psalm 91, it ends with these words that fill us with hope. It says, with long life, I will satisfy them and show them my salvation. And so Jesus, he echoes this in John 10 in words that we're familiar with. He says, I have come that they would have life and have it to the full. God doesn't hide his salvation from us. Amidst all the death and suffering and danger, God reveals to us his salvation. It's then up to us to step into a radically trusting relationship with him. So throughout Psalm 91, we see the imagery being used to depict this kind of danger that those who are far from God are in. And choosing to live outside of God's care is to subject yourself to the retribution of the wicked. And it sounds harsh to hear these words in this psalm. But it's important that we understand that so we can feel viscerally how profound the ending of this psalm is. 
God's salvation, it wouldn't matter if there was nothing to be saved from. And we need to remember that as we read this psalm. And so how do we make sense? How do we make sense of God's protection? That's the big question. And when we look at Psalm 91, we're left with a few things to reflect on. And I want you to hear me out on this. Along our journey, our pilgrimage, we can trust that there is a God who sees us and looks out for us. Number two, we're not spared from earthly pain or troubles, but we are gifted a spiritual security, which is far greater. Number three, God is calling us to, and he's inviting us into, a trusting relationship founded on love, and we can receive his salvation. Do we feel like we have all the answers? No. My hope is that you come away from this with a continued resolve to seek God with these kind of questions. How do we make sense of God's protection? And I love what John Bunyan, the writer of Pilgrim's Progress, says. He says, it is always hard to see the purpose in wilderness wanderings until after they are over. So here's what I do know. That when I was faced with one of the greatest dangers that I could imagine at that time, here we are at the end of this hike of doom, face to face with a large grizzly, and there was a moment where I didn't know what was going to happen. My dad, out of nowhere, steps in front of us, lets out a shout that I'd never heard before in my life, and sent the threat running into the woods. We have a father who goes before us. We have a father who cares for us, who has us in mind along the journey, who is interested and involved and present throughout the very trouble that afflicts us. In the shadow of his wings is where we find rest. And his salvation becomes plain for us to see. And so what I'd love for us to do is for us to read this psalm together once more. And we're going to finish with a responsive liturgy from the Book of Common Prayer. Um, and the words will be up there for you to read. And then we'll close. And so worship team, I want to invite you guys to come up. Um, and for the rest of you, I want to invite you to stand if you're able as we read this psalm together and let the words sink deep into our hearts. Okay. Let us read together. Actually, I'll read the psalm and then we'll respond together as a congregation as soon as the red text comes up. Psalm 91, you who live in the shelter of the Most High, who abide in the shadow of the Almighty, will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for he will deliver you from the snare of the hunter 
from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and defense. You will not fear the terror of the night or the arrow that flies by the day or the pestilence that stalks in darkness or the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your refuge, the most high your dwelling place, no evil shall befall you. No scourge come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder. The young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Those who love me, I will deliver. I will protect those who know my name. When they call to me, I will answer them. I will be with them in trouble, and I will rescue them and honor them. With long life, I will satisfy them and show them my salvation. Now let's read together. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Keep us, good Lord, under the shadow of your mercy. And as you have bound us to yourself in love, leave us not who call upon your name, but grant us your salvation made known in the cross of Jesus Christ, our Lord.